Oh, good morning from me. My name's uh, Peter. I'm one of the uh, one of the pastors here. Good to have you at church. Last week we looked at how um, people were into Jesus in the Gospel of John, but not really into Jesus. They'd seen the signs that Jesus had done, uh, but they weren't really engaged personally with him. And what we actually move on to this week in John chapter three is an actual case study that uh, that John gives us of one of these people and the way that Jesus engages with him. So we're just going to kick straight into that today. So if you can open up your Bibles to John chapter 2, you're going to read the last three verses of John chapter 2 and then the first 15 of John chapter 3. If you're not a Christian and you're not familiar with these matters, uh, John is writing an eyewitness account of Jesus and the things that Jesus did. Um, In fact, the oldest... um, living copy of uh, one of the Gospels is actually a fragment out of John's Gospel. Um, Interestingly enough, um, I don't think it's this fragment, but uh, it is the oldest living fragment. So John chapter 2, verse 22. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus... On his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew, he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees weren't that interested in the temple. So it's not a surprise to have a Pharisee come and talk to Jesus after Jesus had cleared the temple. Temple generally was the domain of the Sadducees. Um, the Pharisees were about cultic purity. Uh, they'd care about washings and eating and tithing and rules. So kind of the rule keepers. Um, so back to verse 1 there. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Uh, now what does that mean? Let me just add a quick note here. Uh, he was in the Sanhedrin, most likely. Uh, the highest tribunal of the Jews. Uh, he exercised civil and criminal jurisdiction. Uh, but they couldn't kill people, which is why when Jesus was arrested, they went to the Romans. Uh, Nicodemus was on this council. Let's keep going. Verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night. said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You see the connection to the last three verses of chapter 2. He's seen the signs. And he's curious. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is where God rules, under God's reign. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, still trying to catch up, said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have 
eternal life. You know what we've got here in this story is we've got a dislocated person. There's this conversation between Jesus and this senior member of Israel. He comes at night and it may be because he's timid but it may also be because he just wants to have a decent conversation and there's so many interruptions during the day. I think that's probably more likely the case. You know, when you, when you look at it, he's actually the exact version of the end of John chapter 2. He's got an interest in Jesus. <laughs> he's into him, but he's not all in. Uh, not by any means. Now, this is strange in a sense, isn't it? For those of you who were here last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus didn't entrust himself to these people. So what's he doing talking with this man? Why would he be having a conversation like this? Last week I talked about how this idea of Jesus not entrusting himself to people is a hint of this operating system that goes on in relationships where we give ourselves to each other bit by bit. That's the essence of what relationship is. There may be an intent to give everything like there is in marriage, but even in marriage we see the unfolding bit by bit of giving of oneself to each other. It's progressive. You know, I also talked last week about how if someone doesn't handle you bad, doesn't handle you well, then you, there's a sense in which you don't just keep giving yourself to people like that. There's, there's wisdom that's needed in relationships. And so we get to this point where Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus. We go, what the? What is going on here? How does this work? I want you to know something this morning. Jesus continues to engage with those he doesn't entrust himself to. Jesus continues to engage with those he doesn't entrust himself to. You know, not entrusting yourself to people and keeping conversation open and relationship open, they're not mutually exclusive. You know, some of you may have gone away from last week and just gone, all right, I'm going to shut some relationships down. These people are just being punks right and they're not handling me well and you just go and maybe I hope it hasn't happened but it's possible that some relationships could have been really upset this week Uh, you might have gone away some of you just even in the back of your mind last week just going does that mean that we can write people off We, we write people off who don't engage with us properly but I want to say to you this morning that is not what God does God always maintains a lean-in posture when it comes to relationship, even with people who don't handle him well. I remember um, my sons, we were down, our whole family was down at my cousin's house and, um, you know, my my brother-in-law and my sister and uh, Ange and I were in this other room um, just chatting and the kids were watching TV and they just started cheering and yelling like there was some amazing competition going on. We walked out there and they're watching lawn bowls. <laughs> True story. Now, what's lawn bowls? Lawn bowls have got a bias in them. They've got a weight on one side of the bowl, and it, go, it, doesn't, it doesn't run straight. When you bowl it on the running surface of a bowl, it doesn't run straight. It curves. It has a bias. And you just need to know that God's bias is always to lean in. It's always to lean in. Even the times in Scripture where it, where God makes it really clear that he's kind of taken a step back. We've got one of those in, uh, in the book of Amos, where Amos is prophesying and God's people over a long period of time have, have just 
They've been rebellious and they haven't listened to anything that he said and they've treated him really poorly. And so through the prophet Amos, God says there's going to be a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Not a famine of, of, of bread and food, it's a famine of hearing the Lord. What does that mean? God wasn't going to talk to them anymore. There wasn't, there wasn't going to be any fresh revelation for them. Now, some of you might be going, all right, okay, I've been looking for a text for the silent treatment. All right, thanks, Peter. You know, don't walk out yet, right? Because some of you are going, yeah, I could really use this one. Can we do that? Is, that? is that a thing? Like, can we do the silent treatment? Well, you know, even when God does that, he hasn't left his people without revelation. They had the books of Moses. They had the law. And they were walking right past it. It wasn't that God stopped communicating at all. He just, nothing fresh. Nothing new. It's in a sense, I think it's part of it is God saying, you can't treat me like that and keep doing relationship the way that you're wanting to do it. But what does he do? He stays leaning in. He always leaves the door of relationship slightly ajar, doesn't he? Always. And I want to encourage you on a personal note, um, don't write people off completely because they don't handle you well. Keep the door slightly ajar. (laughs) If relationship is messy and people are not handling you well and they're hurting you, don't shut the door completely. There's a lot of wisdom that's needed in that space. Uh, We don't even have time this morning, but, you know, every relationship runs by a set of rules. And when people break the rules, they break the relationship. That's actually what you see the whole way through Scripture. You see uh, covenants through Scripture, and covenants are the rules for a relationship. When, when you break the rules for a relationship, you break the relationship. That's what happens. Now, you can, the relationship can be repaired, but you can't have someone that comes in and just runs roughshod over all of the rules and expects to have a healthy relationship. It's not how it works. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of humanity's mistreatment of God and running roughshod over the top of him, he still maintains a lean-in bias. He still leaves the the door slightly ajar. And I think this is what we can see with Jesus and Nicodemus. That's what's going on. You see, Nicodemus is dislocated. He's out of place and he doesn't know it. He's curious, he sees something going on with Jesus, but he's dislocated. And you shouldn't be surprised at the kind of conversation that happens when someone's dislocated. If you've got a dislocated person talking to Jesus, you're probably going to have a dislocated conversation. And that's exactly what we see. We see a conversation that's typical typical of someone who thinks that they're in and they're not actually in. If you've still got your Bibles open, uh, you can keep having a bit of a scan there, verse 3 to 8. Now, Nicodemus turns up to have a conversation about truth and Jesus cracks into a whole other conversation. And I wonder, have you, have you ever had that experience with Jesus? That you turn up to talk about something and then he starts going on about something else. And you just go, well, that's not what I wanted to talk about. I I have. I remember this particularly difficult time in my life. Some of you heard this story before, but I remember this particular 
particularly difficult time in my life and day after day I'd start my time Bible reading and praying and worshipping with God help me, God help me, God help me and then one day I sensed him say to me, well you could just say sorry. <laughs> it's like, no, no, I was coming for help um, and now you're telling me I need to say sorry for something? But there was something masterful in it and what was masterful in it is uh, sorry sounds a bit more relational and um, help me, help me, help me, although God invites us to ask him for help and I don't in any way want to discourage people. You can easily turn God into a, into a vending machine like I talked about last week. But in that moment for me, it was like the train jumped the tracks and all of a sudden it's on a different track and I think that's what happens with uh, Nicodemus here. Uh, and you have to expect that. Uh, the reason why I think you have to expect it is because sin is so disordered and fragmented things that what seems natural or normal for us actually isn't the right way for things to happen it's actually the reverse of the way that God made it so let me take you through this conversation quickly between Nicodemus and Jesus and what I want you to notice in this conversation is it just gets more and more personal uh, the further it goes along here we go Nicodemus Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, Nicodemus is not asking a question, but he actually is. He's asking a question. I wonder if you can, you can see what that question is. Here's what I think the question is. Who are you? That's the question he's asking, I think. And what does Jesus come back with? Well, something completely different. Uh, and he flips it and starts talking about Nicodemus. Um, now, Nicodemus was probably older. He was well-trained. He was learned. He thought he was in, but he wasn't. And Jesus said to him, no, 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 you're getting it all wrong. You haven't got it right. I mean, think about it for a moment. Jesus has just said to Nicodemus, you can just sweep away everything that you've done. You can sweep it all away. You need a complete and utter change in direction. What does he say? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you know what Jesus is saying to uh, Nicodemus? He's saying, you're the wrong kind of person. That's, that's your problem. You're the wrong kind of person. You need to become another person, another kind of person. And as we keep going, it gets more and more personal. The personal bits are in orange there. So Nicodemus asks, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Now, this is a dumb question, right? Let's just call it for how it is. It's a dumb question asked by a smart guy, right? So when you have a smart guy asking a dumb question, you don't automatically assume that he's asking a dumb question because he doesn't know the answer to it. I actually think he's not... I actually think he's not really asking this question, okay? Uh, I don't think he's perplexed in that kind of direction. I, I think it's kind of a little, it, it may be a little sarcastic and he's not entirely happy with, with where things are headed in the conversation. Look at what Jesus does. He just keeps getting more and more personal and drilling it in. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. 
He's pressing in on him. He's pressing in on him. Um, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's Jesus doing? He's making it more personal and he's taking it more out of Nicodemus's control. That's what he's doing. Um, he's saying that Nicodemus needs this massive change and Nicodemus is actually powerless to bring it about. So Nicodemus kind of surrenders a bit, right? How can these things be? (laughs) And Jesus pushes back again. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? He's an expert, but he doesn't understand the way that things work. Now, there are a lot of things that we could say about this passage. And Jesus assumes that Nicodemus knows about a bunch of the things that he said from the Old Testament. There's lots of different interpretations about different parts of what Jesus is saying here. But I wanted to nail down two the two main things that Jesus is saying here. Here's the first one. Being born again is something which happens to you. Being born again is something which happens to you. Now, all of you got born at some point in time. Physical. Okay, let me state the obvious for you. None of you sat somewhere inside your mother's womb with a calendar and worked out when, it, when the day was going to be, all right? Um, you know, it's, it is apparently quite a mystery about what actually starts labour and you might have different ideas about uh, how, it actually, uh, how it actually starts and obviously uh, there could be some uh, medical intervention that starts labour, um, it's, it's a bit of a mystery, I think, to, to medicos, but it is something that happens to you without you being conscious of it. And even if you want to argue, as some people do, that uh, it's actually the baby that brings about labour or makes labour happen, let's just go back a step further than that and ask how you even got there in the first place. Um, and this is the point it all just starts getting really awkward, <laughs> doesn't it? Because all of our parents had sex at some point in time and that... Sorry, I just said that in church, but it, it is, right? And that's kind of how we got here. But here's, here's the big point here. Uh, being born again is something which happens to you. It's something which comes to you. The regeneration of your soul is something which blows in your direction by the Spirit in, in, in the same way that Jesus talks about the wind here. We don't control it. But we can clearly see the Spirit's effects. We need to participate in it, but we aren't the decisive agent in it. What Jesus is saying to uh, Nicodemus here is, uh, Nicodemus, you can't come to God in your own strength and your own righteousness. You can't do it. It won't ever happen. That's the first thing. Being born again is something which happens to you. And we know just straight up from the metaphor that that's... It just makes complete sense. The second thing is this, being born again is about a new you. It's actually about you becoming a new person. You know, when, when a baby is born, it's fresh and new. It's got some cleaning up to do, but it's fresh and it's new. 
And I want to say to you this morning that when it all comes down to it, being a Christian is not about behavior modification. It isn't about adding something in. It isn't about tweaking things. It isn't some kind of personal reno job. You know, parents, when they see a brand new crying baby, what do they say so often? They say, it's a miracle. This is a miracle. That is what it's like to be born again. It's a supernatural transformation. This is why you can't make anyone a Christian by persuasion. Persuasion is helpful I remember an apologist saying years ago that the point of apologetics or giving defense and reasons for the faith is to clear all of the obstacles out of the way so that the only thing that you've got left is the moral obstacle. What's the moral obstacle? Whether the person's going to submit to God or not. That's the moral obstacle. It needs to be a miraculous work. And you know, i just tell you this and this, so let's put this out here so that we can finish on a positive note. You can, you can think you're in and not be in. You, you, you actually, theoretically, you could be sitting here today thinking that you're a Christian and that you're over the line and not be over the line. That's freaky. See, the essence of... Um, The essence of being born again is about becoming new and it's about being cleansed. You see that in verse 5. If you've got your Bibles open, I'll just read it there. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's lots and lots of interpretations of what water and the Spirit even means. Um, and I think the easiest way to understand it is that it's talking about cleansing and renewal. Right? And not that they're two different births, it's all part of the same birth. Um, you know, water in the Old Testament is often associated with cleansing and the Spirit is associated with renewal. I think one of the most powerful texts on this is um, in Ezekiel 36, speaking of the New Covenant. Um, God says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. See that? Cleansing from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. What's that? Um, cleansing and becoming new. That's what it is. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. All right. Let me just make a couple of comments. I'm going to make a few comments to uh, those who don't know Jesus. Okay. If you're at church today, and uh, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you, uh, you don't love Jesus in that sense, uh, this bit's for you. Um, I want to say to you that this Christian thing is not mainly about an argument and it's not mainly about lifestyle. That's not, what, that's not what it's mainly about. It isn't about being a good person. It's about being a different person. That's what it's about. Uh, you don't need behavior modification to get in. That's not how it works. You're estranged, God made you, and you're estranged from him. You're dislocated, and you need to be born again to be in the right place. You need a change of status. That's what you need. You need to be born again. All right, Christians, do you think you can persuade people to be Christians? 
do you think your one-liners are going to get it done? Even like, even just sneaky kind of, you don't tell anyone. Just go, I reckon I can get them over the line. I had this class um, years ago that I taught and we watched this uh, dialogue between uh, Gary Habermas, who's an expert on the resurrection and the evidence for it, and uh, Anthony Flew, who at the time was the world's kind of, one of the foremost academic atheists in the world. And I showed it to my class, this debate, and Flew agreed with Habermas on just about everything. And um, the kids at the end of the class, they said to me, so why doesn't Flew become a Christian? Because it's not just about winning an argument. It's not about persuading someone that something's true. It's about being born again. You will need to bear witness to people. You will need to tell people that the gospel is good news, but the work of conversion isn't your work. That's God's work. That's what he does. So what do you do? Well, you pray. And then when you're done praying, what do you do? Pray. Then when you're done praying, you pray. And then when you're done praying, you pray. And while all that's happening, you bear witness. You know, sometimes in, in Christendom and, you know, I don't want to offend anyone, but because I've done this too, right? But sometimes in Christendom, it's like, oh, we see this little... Someone says something and we go, oh, that's amazing. It's like, well, it might be. I don't know. You know, we can jump all over that sometimes. We, if, if we're with someone who doesn't know Jesus and they're saying things that maybe make it sound like there's something going on inside of them, it's like, yeah, that's good. I think we should have some hope when those kind of comments come. But you know what we really need to see? What the person needs to see is a complete change, complete shift. Um, we, we need a miracle. You, um, the person needs a miracle. You know, is anyone with me? Like, we, we, I do not want a church filled with people who just think that Christianity is behaviour modification and you just got to clean yourself up and then you can become part of the team. Does anyone else want that? I don't want that. I'm just going, no, let's not have that. But to have a church filled with people who have had a miracle happen inside of them and they're cleansed and they're new, I'll have that. Yeah, we'll have a thousand of those, thanks. That'd be great. Here's a big idea. Christianity isn't about being a good person, it's about becoming a different person. That's what it is. Not everyone who looks like they're in, are in. And not everyone who looks like they aren't in is not in. (laughs) It's a double negative. Let me say it a different way. Not everyone who looks like they aren't in will miss out. You've heard it before. People have said it, you know. Um, I think we get to heaven and we'll find out. We'll be a little surprised because there probably won't be some people there that we thought would be there. And we'll also be surprised because there'll be some people there that we didn't think were going to be there. You know, I've often said to people that um, being a Christian is like holding a piece of wet soap, right? The, um, the more you think you got it, um, the less you do. You know, and there are some people who have got it and it doesn't look like they got it and to people around them maybe it doesn't look like they got it but they probably got it. So here's the question. How do you get in? It's a good question, isn't it? How do you get in? 
Well, in one sense, Jesus has said it's something that needs to be done to you. But interestingly, and we'll see this the whole way through Scripture, there's also something that you need to do. He tells those who are dislocated how to get relocated. And how do you do it? Well, you need a relocating look. If you've got your Bibles open there, have a look at verse 14 to 15. I'm just going to read that. John 3, 14 to 15. This is the look. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, John ends Jesus' discussion here with a final note about how the dislocation between humanity and God is dealt with. And he uses this metaphor from the Old Testament. You go back to Numbers 21. What happened in Numbers 21 is the people got impatient, something they did pretty regularly, and God sent snakes into the camp as punishment for their impatience. And they were poisonous, and they they bit people, and a bunch of people died. And so the people go to Moses, and they go, Moses, can you talk to God about this? This is not going well for us. I mean, I wouldn't like it. It's like, yeah, let's have a whole bunch of eastern brown snakes in the camp. That's a good plan. We have lots of them around our house, and I I don't like snakes at all. And I don't like Eastern Browns. That's pretty much the only ones we have. And, and so God says to Moses, he goes, here's what you need to do. You need to make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and stand it up. And everyone who is bitten, this is Numbers 21, verse 8 to 9, when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Life would come by looking at the bronze serpent. It was a faith thing. They weren't meant to place their trust in this serpent on a pole. And they actually did that, unfortunately. King Hezekiah later on had to smash the thing because people thought it was some kind of party trick that was going to look after them, but it was actually God behind it. God healed them when they looked to the serpent. And, you know, it was a shadow of what was coming. You know, Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus, he's saying, I am going to be lifted up on a pole like that serpent was. I'm going to be crucified. And it's going to be his moment of greatest glory, his greatest moment. And it would look like the moment of greatest shame. You know, I I think the, um, I've looked at, a bunch of these football players that have been convicted and, uh, of, of serious crimes, you know. And then uh, it's a camera shot, isn't it, of, the, of the, um, the convicted criminal. He's been out on bail, walking to the courtroom to get their sentence. It's their sentencing. And, it, you know, that is a shameful moment. To be a convicted criminal and to be walking into the court to get your sentence for the evil thing that you've done is a shameful moment. But for Jesus, it wasn't a shameful moment. This execution that was taking place was actually his greatest moment. It was his most glorious moment. It was the moment where you actually got to see on full display in a full-orbed kind of way what, who he was. And, and John actually speaks to this regularly throughout his gospel he talks about him being lifted up 
if Nicodemus turns to Jesus, when Jesus is lifted up and looks to him in faith and trust that he has died for him and rescued him and paid for his sin, the new birth will happen in Nicodemus. That's how it works. He will become a different person. Now let me finish with a, uh, a postscript about Nicodemus. Nicodemus only shows up about three times in the whole of the Gospel of John. Uh, this is the first time. Uh, when we get to John chapter 7, there's an interesting discussion going on between the officers, the chief priests and the Pharisees about Jesus because they wanted to arrest him. I mean, most of that chapter, they had people wanting to kill him. And in this conversation, Nicodemus pipes up and uh, he reminds everyone there about, basically about the need for a fair trial. That's what he does. And uh, when, I, when I read it, I just instantly inside of me, I just go, hmm, something is going on in that boy. Something is going on in that boy that in that kind of hostile context, he would actually step up and just go, I think we need to give this guy a fair trial. The next time Nicodemus pops up is after Jesus has been crucified. I wonder if you'd turn to that section with me. That's John chapter 19, verse 38. John 19, verse 38. I'm going to read all of it. Uh, Jesus is dead, he's been crucified. Uh, if you're not a Christian, you just need to know anyone who's anyone in terms of history knows that Jesus died on the cross. There's so much evidence for that. He's dead on the cross. Uh, verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was the disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. And look, he pops up in 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. You see, John's making the direct connection for you. Came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. There is an incredible majesty in this scene. Do you know what it is? Nicodemus was one of the ones that Jesus didn't entrust himself to. But he's, I think he's different. Something's happened in Nicodemus. And do you know what's happening here? This, is the, this thing just blows my circus in my brain. The one for whom Jesus didn't entrust himself to is entrusted with the body of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? He got, I think he got there. I think it was a slow burn, <laughs> but I think he got there. And you can too, if you don't know Jesus. 
You can too. And Jesus will entrust himself to you.